This podcast is brought to you by Bonus Room Productions, and we own this town. I am Jason T. Mears, Esquire. And I'm Kelly Hoyle Bullock. And we are San Dimas Today. All right, Kelly. How's it going, man? JT, here we are, my friend. A monumental moment for us. I know. On on the precipice of oblivion together. Uh, That's right. (laughs) The last anchor left in my life. Oh, just going to float away (laughs) forever. Just to... Oh, man. Um, What a journey this has been. Pretty crazy. Um, First, you know, we want to say hello to our listeners. We want to apologize for being away for a while. Had to go away for a while. (laughs) But, you know, uh, came back with some big stuff, some good stuff. We got this. We're not going to call it the final episode, but we're going to call it probably the final episode. So, one, thank you all for listening forever. Two, just to get out in front of this, you're about to hear kind of the the white whale of what we've been trying to do, our interview with Ed Solomon. It's a perfect bookend, really, for this whole podcast. If you guys can remember way back when, two or three years ago, I don't even know now, <laughs> yeah. like the last year was five years, so right. who knows. Right. But we started this thing, uh, you know, not not even with the goal of getting interviews uh, and with a, with a little push from our producer, Michael. The first interview we landed was with Chris Madison. And we re- reordered that to be our first episode. So mm-hmm. um, the fact that we started with Chris and we were ending with Ed is just, oh man, it makes my heart so full. It's and, perfect. And I'll say, like, Ed was the very first person we reached out to. And he emailed us back within 15 minutes. Is like, love to do it, guys. Let's find the time. And then it took three years to actually find the time. But we did it. Yeah. And Big props to Ed and to Michael to, to like, t- carry us over, you know, get us where we needed to go. You know, Ed, a little busy, you know? Guy, <laughs> guy's got a lot going on. Yeah. And uh, he's been putting out great work in the interim. Um, man, he couldn't have been more gracious. And, you know, he was in his apartment. It was in the evening. We were here. Uh, you know, I felt like there were some feels, you know? Uh, we were opening up to each other. It was yeah. it was a really great time. Man, I, I, I loved it. I loved it so much. So let's... Let's get to the interview, and then afterwards, let's circle back and talk a little bit about the interview and the show. Sounds good. Here's Ed Solomon. Excellent! Ed Solomon, thank you so much for joining us. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad to be on, and I can't tell you how thrilled I am that you even exist. Thank you. Thank you. We're thrilled you exist as well. (laughs) I'm kind of happy about that, too, given (laughs) I was a student at one point, but yeah. I want to start, like... Back at the beginning of your career, if that's all right, and we'll get to the Bill and Ted stuff later, but uh, you started out pretty young, like, doing stand-up, and, and you got into writing jokes. Is that right? I started uh, thinking I wanted to be a stand-up comic, going to the comedy store on my first night in L.A., driving down with my mother from Northern California, going to open mic at the comedy store in Westwood, having a good set, which made me think, oh, forget it. I'm not going to go to UCLA. I'm just going to be a comic. Inviting every single person I knew from high school who was at UCLA to come see me the next week where I bombed so badly (laughs) that I felt worse for the people who came to see me than I did for myself because they had to basically walk the mile back with me to my apartment or basically to our dorms or wherever they were living. And they had to figure out what to say to me (laughs) afterwards. (laughs) And I, I decided, okay, no more stand-up. I'm going to be an econ major, and, you know, that's it. And then about a year later, this girl that I had a giant crush on was touring UCLA, and she wanted to go to the comedy store, so I went with her. 
thinking, oh my God, they're going to, when I walk in, they're going to stone me or not let me in because <laughs> Um, I had a year ago as if 7,000 open mic comedians hadn't been through in a year, right? Doing two minute bits. But I went in and of course, nobody of course had any idea, of course, who I was that I had bombed a year ago. And a comedian there, I overheard saying that Jimmy Walker was looking for writers and Jimmy Walker performed that night. And so I went up to him afterwards and I said, hey, do you need writers? I don't know what I was thinking. Like, I think I was thinking when he was performing, I thought, or when I was watching the comedians perform, I thought maybe I could write that stuff. Cause I had written jokes in high school. That's what I had performed the year before, you know? Mm -hmm. And he said, he said, you know, we're always looking for writers or where, however his voice was at that time, you know, he patted me on the head. I remember, and he gave me a phone number. And so, and, uh, and an address of a guy named Gene Bronstein, who was his uh, creative manager at that time, you know, head joke, head writer. And I wrote, I went back to the dorms that night and on that, remember that onion skin typing paper yes. that you, oh, yeah. that you could erase as you type? <laughs> I remember writing, you know, dear Mr. Walker, enclosed, please find 22 jokes. No, dear Mr. Bronstein, enclosed, please find 22 jokes for your and Mr. Walker's perusal. I remember <laughs> writing that. And I mailed these jokes in and then I got a letter back I don't know, a few weeks later saying they bought two jokes. And I was like, oh my God. And then I used to go to the comedy store and bring a date and watch Jimmy Walker perform a joke I wrote and then go backstage and like try to impress the date by introducing him to Jimmy Walker. And he, I remember one time he's like, he said to this girl that I had brought, you got to come to the comedy store. You got to meet Jimmy Walker. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like, you got all these good things. And I was like, I think he's trying to help me get laid, which by the way, he didn't ultimately succeed. So I, I need to talk to him about that. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> yeah, but I started there. And then um, I wrote a bunch of jokes for a while and, you know, started doing stand up and met a lot of great friends at UCLA. And um, one of them was Chris that I met not through stand up, but through uh, trying to get into writing classes because I was not, I was an economics major. And because I wasn't a, a film major, I couldn't get in any screenwriting classes, but I was able to get into a playwriting class. And that's where I met Chris. Nice. Nice. That's very cool. And at the time, like, so I'm, I'm just trying to drive this. Like you, you were also in college, you started writing for Laverne and Shirley, right? Had you met Chris oh. before then or after, or how did that? I met Chris before and Chris and I became great friends at that time. And we laughed and laughed and laughed. And we started doing um, some improv together but mostly uh, Chris had directed a play. How Chris and I got to be really good friends was I wrote a play that was actually a drama that Chris directed and he did an incredible job with it. It was really, he did a great job with it, but we started to develop our sense of humor together, or at least our shared sense of humor during auditions for the play where we started just trashing the play that we were doing to ourselves. <laughs> okay, yeah. One of ourselves I remember a moment where we just were looking, we were uh, holding auditions in a, um, I think it was like a makeup room or it was some room that was walled with mirrors. And I remember us both each other or noticing that we were each, rather than looking at the person who was auditioning, looking at ourselves in the mirror. And for <laughs> some reason we started laughing about that. I just remember that moment. And then we just began a process of 
making fun of ourselves and making fun of the play that we were doing. Uh, again, Chris directed it as a drama and he it was a dramatic play that worked, but we laughed so much trashing ourselves and trashing <laughs> the process of doing it that we just became great friends at that time. And then my senior year, the joke writing combined with a different play that I had written. I'd written a comedy uh, play. Um, and I was writing, one of the comedians I was writing for was Gary Shandling at that, by then. And Gary introduced me to a TV producer named Mark Sotkin, who came to see one of the plays, that, 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 that specific, the comedy one that mm -hmm. I'd written, and hired me as a staff writer on Laverne and Shirley. And I was absolutely unprepared for that. Professionally, I was not even close to being ready. You know, going from being a guy like writing jokes in the dorms and occasionally like punching up a comedian set or selling a joke here or two jokes there to being in a room with professional comedy writers around a table trying to like, like having to churn out these scripts weekly. I was okay. I wasn't great. I was okay. I was no wunderkind. I was just a contributing staff writer and I wrote a couple episodes. But that was incredibly uh, difficult for me and sort of fried me and and was depressing. And I it, it stoked a giant fear, which was, I don't know if I have it. Like, I don't know if I have what it takes to be a pro. And that led to, because I didn't get hired, like Mark didn't bring me onto another show. I didn't get hired, you know, into another season on another show. I was pitching some ideas. I was writing for some game shows and Chris had written a brilliant, a couple of brilliant, really, really funny parody scripts. And I had written a mediocre spec about something or other screenplay. And I remember saying to Chris, Hey, what if we wrote something together? And by that time, Chris and I had been doing improv together with three other friends, Ryan Rowe, Mark Sandrowski and Mark Jaffe. We had, formed an improv group that performed at a theater in, in LA without an audience. We didn't want an audience. We just wanted to work out. And I, I imagine when you guys had Chris on, you might've talked about this, yeah. but like we, we were just working out to work out. And that's where the characters came up. It was Chris. Chris said, Hey, what if we do two guys who know nothing about history, <laughs> studying history. And we started with Bill Ted and there was a guy named Bob as well, actually. And we wanted, and, uh, there was, I remember, uh, one of the, uh, Ted's dad, Ted's last name was originally Williams and Ted's dad was played by Mark Sandrowski. And there was a guy named Rufus who at that moment was like some kind of like a high school. I think he was like a 27 year old. I don't remember what Rufus was in the improv, but there was a guy named Rufus played by Mark Jaffe. Chris and I loved playing these voices. We just loved being in the heads of these guys. So afterwards we went out to a coffee shop and kept doing Bill and Ted and for a year, we just messed around as Bill and Ted without any idea of putting them in anything. It never even crossed our mind to put them in anything. And it was funny because we both were writers and we were both wanting to be comedy writers, but it never crossed our mind to like strip mine these characters or any characters and put them in something. But when it came time to write something together, we were like, what should we write? And we thought, what if we did Bill and Ted as a movie? And that's how that started. Wow, that is really cool. Um, now, the the script 
I know there was uh, some production uh, delay or the release was delayed and whatnot, but from like when you started writing the script with Chris to actually pitching it and somebody saying, yeah, let's go ahead and do this. How long did that process take? We didn't pitch it. Really? We uh, sat down. We, we decided that we wanted to do Bill and Ted as a movie. I remember Chris was in grad school in San Diego. I was host Laverne and Shirley in my apartment in Westwood because I remember an early conversation where Chris was doing notes. I still have the notes, but we were on the phone. He was in San Diego. I remember being on the floor because my, I didn't have a bed frame. I only had a <laughs> mattress on the floor. And I remember lying on the floor laughing as we were talking about Bill and Ted, what if they were responsible for everything bad that ever happened in history? That's what I remember. And I remember us, imagining them with Abraham Lincoln when he got shot at the Titanic, when it sang, <laughs> like all these things that went wrong, somehow Bill and Ted causing, and that was cracking us up, mm -hmm. which led to us thinking about the way Bill and Ted would talk to great people and the way they wouldn't differentiate them at all. Like mm -hmm. the way they wouldn't, Abraham Lincoln, Sigmund Freud, they both had beards. That was what they, they were both bearded guys. There's no difference <laughs> otherwise. And we realized pretty quickly that we can't have them responsible for the Holocaust. We can't have them <laughs> responsible for like, that's bad. That's just good. So why are they juxtaposed with these great people? And that led us to the, his the history report idea. Mm -hmm. Like, what if they have a history report and somehow if they flunk it, they'll get separated and they don't want to get separated because we didn't have the idea that their band would save the world at that point. It was like, they'd be separated was the big jeopardy. Ted would go to military school, so they can't be separated. So what if they have a, they have to pass a history report and they have to go back in time to pass the history report, which led to this idea of what if Rufus drives a van that goes <laughs> back in time and Rufus, as I think Chris might've said, I don't know, but Rufus was originally a 27 year old high school sophomore yeah. who, <laughs> yeah. who had a, and we never explained why other than he probably was a complete stoner. I'm sure he was a stoner in our first imagination, even though Bill and Ted, you know, in the movies, they don't do any drugs, right. but in our right. original inception of them, they pretended to do drugs. I don't know if they actually did do drugs. <laughs> I can Chris see and that. I wrote a lot of letters back and forth as Bill and Bill. I mean, I'm sorry, as Ted and Ted's older brother, Dan. And I know Dan was a giant stoner. <laughs> um, we used to have them. I don't know if I still have those letters, but Rufus, in the original inception, drove a van that went through time and we never explained why. And he had a dog I remember named Dog Rufus. And Bill and Ted just went back in time and collected these historical figures for their report. That was the original draft. And then we finished it and we wrote it on spec. What, what happened was we, we, in like March of 84 and April of 84 and then Ju maybe July of 84, we did some notes. And in July, we went, my parents were up at Lake Tahoe and we went to go stay with them in a cabin there. And every day for like three or four days, we went into Tahoe City and we started outlining what became the movie. And then we came back to LA and, in, I, and I guess maybe at Ships, I think we spent a lot of time at Ships and at Norm's and at Dolores's. Those were all coffee shops in Westwood. Just blasting through a rough handwritten draft of the script and laughing and not really knowing anything about film structure 
And I remember one moment where Chris looked at me across the table and he's like, maybe someone will read this script. <laughs> that was like our big dream. Someone yeah, will read right. it. Oh my God. And then I also remember, and this is interesting given that I'm now a 60 year old man and, you know, spent 12 years trying to get Bill and Ted face the music off the ground. I remember us saying during that period, imagine how pathetic it'll be if we're 30 and we're still writing Bill and Ted. <laughs> <laughs> God, how wrong we were. But I remember then we finished a rough draft hand typed on two different typewriters and it was missing something. I don't remember why we felt that, but then we said, because I remember we were at Ships in Westwood and I remember it was late at night because it was dark out. Because I remember the moment where we were like, what if it's not just that they'll be separated, but what if their music is response, like we'll save the world 700 years in the future. And what, because there was some issue, I think what we were realizing was the, the movie is basically set in reality and there's a science fiction element to it, which is a time travel. But what is the reality of a van that time travels? That didn't feel real given the physics of the movie that we'd set up. Mm -hmm. So we were like, what if they come from the future? So what if Rufus is from the future? And that led to this idea of like, what if their music saves the world in the future, which led to the Rufus comes from the future in a van. And the script was then called Bill and Ted's time van. And that was our first draft. Rufus drives a big green van. He comes from the future. In the future, their music saves the world. Bill, you know, that led to the scene in the future. And that led to Be Excellent to Each Other and Party On Dudes, which we wrote at Ships in Westwood. Wow. And we didn't think that was very important. I remember when we were writing it, we were like, what would they say? Be Excellent to Each Other, Party On Dudes. Okay. And we just kept going. We didn't realize that that would land. <laughs> Yeah. Like it landed yeah. in a way. And then we turned that script into my agents who hated it and begged us to not send it out, which led to us having no agents. Wow. <laughs> which, yeah, which led to back to the Laverne and Shirley, which was a younger agent named David Greenblatt who had actually liked, well, who had wanted to sign me two years earlier on Laverne and Shirley, but instead I went with a fancy famous agent, which was a big mistake. Who didn't give a shit, honestly. Hmm. They never got our movie. We were then fired from that agency. And I gave that script. To, I said to David Greenblatt, would you be interested in reading this? And he said, of course. And he read it and he liked it. And he brought it. He was just moving over to CAA. And it was David Greenblatt who, whose enthusiasm got the script out to people. And that got us. And we got the script optioned for $5,000. And we were paid $15,000 to rewrite it, which was for us fantastic. Yeah. Uh, for Interscope, Interscope Communications. So it was Rob, a guy named Robert Court uh, bought it. And that got set up at Warner Brothers. And that really began our film career, basically, at that point. So that's the be how that all started. Um, before we move forward, you mentioned Gary Shandling. So. What was it like working on the Gary Shandling show? Because I'm a huge fan of that show. And I, I just, I would love to have any input or anything oh, at all about Gary. Thank <laughs> you for seeing it. So, because nobody saw that show. I mean, that was, you know, Gary's first show. Nobody saw. 
I, re- I remember watching it on my dad's satellite television when I was younger, <laughs> like messing around with the knobs and like yeah. seeing it in, in the, the weird stagey set and then just being transfixed that somebody could do that on television. <laughs> oh, God. Thank you so much. You know, nobody saw it. It was on two networks and nobody saw it. It was on Showtime <laughs> and Fox and yeah. nobody saw it. Yeah. It was, it was uh, I want to say 86, maybe. Maybe it was 87. 86, 87, Gary uh, said, hey, I'm going to do a TV show. Here's the idea for the pilot. Do you have any interest? And I remember actually going, oh, I think this is awesome. Mm -hmm. And Gary, who had been a giant mentor for me, and again, you know, as we said, he helped me get on that. I mean, he was responsible for me meeting Mark, who hired me for that show. And he was the first person who ever said, if you really want to write, you can. You could be a writer. And he was extremely critical, which was great. Mm You know, that first comedy, the first time I met him was at UCLA doing stand-up at UCLA when we used to hire in the comedy club at UCLA, which was a group of student comedians. We'd hire a pro to come in and do the headlining. And Gary said to me, you you have two good jokes in your set and the rest you can throw away. Do you want to understand why? And I was like, yeah. And then he said, we'd be interested in writing because you could write. And I was like, yeah. And that's how I'm, I mean, so Gary was really the first adult the first grown-up the first professional who who had given me any encouragement really you know so now uh what is it six years later seven years later gary says i've got a show would you like to work on it i'm going to do the show and i was yeah so the original four writers were gary alan zweibel who was just a wonderful man and a brilliantly funny guy he had just come off of saturday night live Mm -hmm. Uh, Jack Burns, old school comedian from Burns and Schreiber and Mm -hmm. a a sweetheart of a man who was a client of Bernie Brillstein, who had put him on the show and me. And we were like, well, what is this show? It's a show about a guy named Gary Shandling who has a TV show called It's Gary Shandling's Show. So it's a TV show about a guy who has a TV show and he speaks to the audience and the physics of the show were he's the only one who knows he's on TV and everyone else doesn't. So the rules for everyone else were different than the rules for Gary. And we were just making it up as we were going along. And because nobody was paying any attention to it, we could do whatever we wanted. And we were in that lucky place where we were making all sorts of tremendously bad decisions. <laughs> based on our inexperience and inability to actually complete a good story arc (laughs) that we are getting credit for breaking molds when in fact we were writing ourselves literally into a corner like we literally (laughs) write ourselves into a corner of the set and they and then i remember vic kaplan our production our our, uh, line producer going you don't have any more money we can't build another set and we'd be like but we have two more scenes he's like we can't do it and i and we'd be like well, what do we do? So Gary would say something like, see this shoebox? This is the set, you know? And then we just go pretend I'm in here. And, and then they just stand in a blank space. And we thought, we fucked ourselves so much. And then, but critics thought, oh, look how brilliant they are. Because they gave us the benefit of the doubt for a while. Man, but the, They it, were wrong too, but they did. Yeah. We just literally didn't know what we, we just like, right. We were having a lot of fun. And I will say, and there were some wonderful writers that came in on that show. Some of the funniest people I've ever met, way funnier than I could ever be, like Max Pross and Tom Gamble and Al Jean and Mike Reese. And there was just a whole slew of 
tremendously funny people that I, that I learned so much from who could get to those jokes in ways that I would never be able to, but we would laugh. And one of the big lessons I learned from that show was when you base a story on a conceit or concept of the show, like something about Gary breaking the fourth wall or, you know, something that broke the physics of the show, the show would suck. But if you would base it on an emotional truth and then let the conceptual strangeness grow out of the emotional truth, the show would work better. So that was a big lesson I, I took from that. But um, that was a fun, fun experience. And it's a rarity because I felt like we were just playing. I mean, we were working our asses off and we were there till three, four in the morning. I remember sleeping at the office many nights like sleeping in the coffee room or on some couch and getting up and having to keep going. You know, it was, it was crazily neurotic, very poorly run, you know, very, we had no idea what we were doing, but we were laughing yeah. and that laughing was driving us. And we, and I was young. There's a funny, um, when I was on Laverne and Shirley day one or week one, one of the head writers comes in and says, Every day, three o'clock is nap time. We have, we, have, we have to do 22 shows in 22 weeks. So between three and 3.30, phones are off, everyone naps. And then we come back at 3.30 and we work until late at night. And every day at nap time on Laverne and Shirley, I'd go into my office and I'd try to take a nap, but I couldn't sleep. And I would lie in my couch and I'd be absolutely convinced that I was gonna be fired. And I wouldn't sleep for a minute and I'd come back into the room and everyone would be all awake having napped. And like, I was like, they can nap. I can't nap. And they'd have all this energy and they'd go till three, four in the morning. I got a jewel check at one point, maybe 15 years ago for like $60. And I called this guy, the head writer. And I said, Hey, let me take you to lunch. And we we're talking about various things in our now adult life. And I was talking about meditation and how it had helped me. And I was like, I wish I had meditated during nap time. I could have really, really utilized nap time better. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I was like, nap time. You said nap time. And he's like, I don't, I don't understand. And I said, do you remember when you made an announcement to the whole staff that we we're doing naps at three o'clock? And he's like, no. And I was like, what are you talking about? I went into my office every day at three to try to nap. And he's like, nap time? And then he goes, he looks at me and he goes, Ed we weren't napping. We were doing Coke. <laughs> I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I knew the entire season. I thought everyone, I was like, that's why you had all the energy. That, then the reason I bring this up is then I'm on Gary Shandling's show. And there was a moment and I, the, the show, the first season was shooting very close to my apartment or where I lived. So I used to, there was a moment in mid afternoon, we'd do a run through and then like the hires up would get the notes and all that. There was usually like an hour between the run through and when we had to actually start rewriting. So I used to quickly get home. I would run around Silver Lake. I would take a quick shower and I'd come back to the office. I found out at the end of the season, I can't remember if it was Tom and Max or whether it was Mike and Al that said to me, 
we just assume I, I'd come back flushed, you know, like my face was red, <laughs> right? They're like, we thought you were leaving to do coke. <laughs> that was so funny. The entire season, yeah, yeah. they thought I was because I'd come back and I'd be all like energized. And I actually had a thing where I would sit on the at the rewrite table. I would sit on the top of my chair, like up. You know, I know we're on audio, so people can't see it, but I'd sit on the back of the chair because if I sat too low in the chair, I didn't, I didn't. I don't know. I just didn't have the energy. So I'd sit up on my chair. They just thought it was completely coked out of my head. And I never was. Well, they, they'd heard all those rumors from Laverne and yeah, Shirley, yeah, I'm sure. From right? Laverne and Shirley. Well, he's Laverne and Shirley. Clearly, he must be just coked right. out of his mind. Oh, man. Oh, that's fantastic. But no. I never, I, you know, a friend of mine, a, a wonderful director named Fred Skepsi, his motto was always, if you're going to get blamed for it, do it. <laughs> but I never did it. I just got blamed for it, I guess. And then I didn't do it when everyone else was doing it. Oh, well, thank God, by the way. Yeah. Right. Had I, I would have. Yeah, you, you probably wouldn't be making Bill and Ted face the music. <laughs> no, I wouldn't be anywhere now. Honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm thank God, actually, yeah. for a lot of reasons. Thank God, because that's a path that would not work out well for me. Well, uh, speaking of cocaine, um, if <laughs> <laughs> of course, as you do, yeah. When when you started making Excellent Adventure, you know one of the great things I've loved about all three of the movies are, are the musician cameos. Is that something that maybe Steve Herrick or other folks that kind of helped push, I guess, the music theme to become, I don't know, the sort of centerpiece that it is now? We didn't really have in the first movie any way to get anyone interested because it was just this stupid little low budget indie movie that starring two people no one had ever heard of that had, that was like stupid, you know, like it was like, what high school kids doing what? <laughs> and I remember, and you know, Martha Davis, mm -hmm. we got three people, Martha Davis, who was Chris's mother-in-law. Oh, oh, all okay. right. Did not uh, know that. Yeah, but but I don't. But Martha wasn't Chris's mother-in-law then. Okay. <laughs> Actually, Chris met his wife, who's Trish, who's um, just you know, and they've been married since uh, on the set of Bill and Ted. So Martha oh. was already involved. But but we had known Martha through a social circle. Some friends of ours had known Marsha, and known the kids, and somehow Marsha uh, Martha agreed to do it, and then somehow I think she got. Weibo from yeah. the tubes, mm -hmm. I think. And somehow somebody got Clarence Clemens. And I was like, Clarence Clemens, I, like, honestly, I was, when I met him, I, my knees were shaking because oh. I was such a Bruce fan and seen him in so many concerts already by then. Right. But no, we were not getting musicians was not easy on the first one. And on the second one, it wasn't that easy. Like, I don't know why Jim Martin decided to do it. And we got some <laughs> other bands, but on Face the Music, it was a little easier, but our budget was so fucked on right. Face the Music. Sure. We had so little money that we we really struggled because we couldn't fly anyone in. Mm -hmm. Like we were like, would you be interested in coming and you know, hey musician who normally flies in private jets, <laughs> how'd you like to take a Southwest flight that stops in Philadelphia <laughs> and brings you to New Orleans? We didn't have a very very um, attractive <laughs> proposal. Right, right, for right. People. But you also had the but cultural that, cachet, well, right? I mean, like people who were in no, Bill and Ted would have dropped everything to be there for sure. to be in Bill and Ted. Well, and at least at least you were in New Orleans, right? So you, you know, you well, had. We did have that offer, right. but like 
you know, even even I can say now, I wasn't able to say at the time, but you know, okay, so for those of you who haven't seen the movie, I, well, you know what? Fuck you again. <laughs> So Dave Grohl's in the movie yep, and he yep. has a cameo. And if you do see it, you deserve to have this spoiler. Um, yeah. I don't even need to say it. <laughs> so Dave Grohl, he didn't even, he, we couldn't even get him to New Orleans. We couldn't figure out a schedule and we couldn't figure out a budget to get him there. So we shot his scene without him. And when they look out at Dave Grohl, they just looked out at a green screen. And then in LA, after we done shoot, we were done shooting. We just shot Dave Grohl. Like they just <laughs> shot Dave Grohl against a green screen. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. So what Dean shot was he shot a plate, which is the word for you know a a, a still photo basically of the the background set mm -hmm. of Bill and Ted's point of view out the door of the so called quote Dave Grohl mansion, and then in L.A. they just shot Dave Grohl against a green screen going. Who are you guys? And what are you doing in my house? And he was great. It took 10 minutes. It was like the easiest thing in the world. That's how that happened. And getting him to agree to do it was fantastic. And he couldn't have been nicer. And he was great, by the way. But like we had more people interested in being in Face the Music. We just couldn't yeah. afford to get right. them there in a way that was comfortable. Like not even... Like nobody was saying you gotta fly me private. It was just like, wait, sure. like it's gonna like be such a pain in the ass. Like, <laughs> we're so sorry. We like we don't have any money, and we just didn't have any money. And you know that's where Dean Pariso stepped up. Like you can't believe because the movie looks like it costs five times what it actually cost. You know. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I know when we we had a great interview uh, a while back with Laura Shapiro. Uh, yeah, friend of yours. Terrific. Yeah, she she was great, and she talked to us a little bit about your relationship with Steven Soderbergh and how, uh, you know, he had a hand in helping you guys there towards the end. I think when maybe when the the funding wasn't looking so great. Yeah, he's. I've learned so much from him, and I'm just you know, this this chapter of my life slash career. I'm doing. I've done about to start my fourth thing with him. Nice. And we had done this HBO thing called Mosaic that mm -hmm. not a lot of people saw, but it was like a six episode thing on HBO that he had directed. And, but Steven was like, why are you guys having problems getting this movie made? And I'm like, I, I know I would think we could, we've been trying for like 10 years, 11 years. So Steven was like, this is bullshit. And I, I gave him the <laughs> script and he made calls on our behalf. And he, I remember him calling MGM going, what are you guys doing? You know, why aren't you making this? And he was really helpful there. But where he was incredibly helpful, too, was in post-production, because he's an incredible editor as well, was just being kind of a godfather in a certain way for it. Mm -hmm. He wasn't on set or anything like that. But he he really helped us. You know, in, in, in he stepped in in very key areas where we really needed his help. He helped us in certain marketing things. He helped us, you know, getting a call from him obviously had a lot of meaning, mm -hmm. especially when we were pounding on doors at certain times and that we couldn't get to open in the way we wanted to. So he, uh, he really served a function as executive producer in the way that, you know, we have about, I think 745 executive producers on, <laughs> on the music and he served as a real one. That's awesome. Uh, That's great. You know, I did check out IMDB with the new film. Brendan Fraser is stars in that, right? 
Brendan, actually, he's not the. It's it's Don Cheat. Oh, so you're talking about no sudden move? No sudden Brendan, move. That's it. That's when it. Fraser's yeah. in it. He was terrific. He was great. He he's is a very different role than you mm-hmm. might expect. He plays a, a bag man, basically a thug. Okay. And it's Don Cheadle and Benicio del Toro. Those are the two main characters. Okay. It's Ray Liotta. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, Brendan. So you guys Tieran were really Cul- struggling for uh, talent there. It sounds like. A- <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a remarkable group of actors. And there's an unbelievable, like, experience watching them work. And watching Steven work, because it's unlike any other director. First of all, he's the cinematographer and the camera operator okay. and the editor and the director. And so you're not wasting any time. It's no, there's no standing around. There's no what they call video village, meaning there's no playback going on. There's no director's chairs where people sit. There's no small talk. It's basically you show up early and you get to work. Crew shows up at eight. The first shot's at like 810, not 1045 in the morning. <laughs> like first shot, he shoots only what he needs and he moves on. So as editor, he's like picking up a piece of this scene, a piece of it there, a piece of it there. Okay, we're moving. And you're like, wait, what? And like moving. <laughs> so it's fast. It's cheaper. It's, you know, you get out. Some days you're working three, four, five hours instead of 12, 13, 14 hours, you know. It's a remarkable experience, actually. When you work with actors, uh, maybe depending on the director or the setting, are there actors that just have to see for themselves what's been filmed? Even shoots what he shoots in the day. And rather than watch dailies at night, you watch a cut scene. Okay. He edits it. So what happens is he finishes the work. He gets the footage. He goes back to wherever we're shooting. He edits it on his computer. And at the, and when he's ready, you know, when we were doing mosaic, you'd come into a room and watch it. But in no sudden move, it was all COVID. We weren't, getting to hang out in public in, in spaces. We'd just be in our hotel room. You just get a notification. Hey, it's ready to be viewed on the app on the website or wherever. <laughs> and you'd watch a scene or two scenes. Oh, wow. Of that day. So that's awesome. So most directors take 14, 18, 20 weeks to compile a director's cut at the end of a shoot. His director's cut is available the day after you finish shooting. That's amazing. I can't. It's remarkable. It really is remarkable. <laughs> and on No Sudden Move, it's the first time I watched a movie and I thought, like I watched a rough cut of a film because most of the time, I'm sure you guys know this, you watch a rough cut and you have to brace. You, it's almost like you have to put a seatbelt on and a helmet. Sure. Because <laughs> you're like, oh God, oh God, oh God. And all you see are your flaws. And by the way, all I see when I watch anything are my flaws. That's why I don't like to watch anything that I've ever written. <laughs> no Sudden Move was the first movie I watched and went, you know what? I kind of don't care if anyone else likes this because I'm proud of this. I'm, I'm proud of it because it's beautiful to look at and the actors are great. And if you guys, you guys, so to speak, meaning people don't care for it, doesn't matter to me because I think Steven did a, a beautiful job with it, to be honest, you know, and I think the cast is great. And, you know, people will have their opinions and it may not be for everybody because no movie is for anybody. It's for everybody. I mean, nobody's for anybody. <laughs> Everything is for nobody. No movie's for everybody, but it's, um, I, I thought it was, it, it's, 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 I think it's one of Don Cheadle's best performances. I think Benicio is amazing. 
Uh, John Hamm is wonderful in it. The the women in it are fantastic. Amy Siemens. I don't know if she pronounced it Siemens or Simons, but she's great. And Julia Fox is great. Uh, Frankie Shaw is great. And Noah Jupe is in it. And he's wonderful. Wow. a young actor. Um, it's just wonderful performances. You know, the first time I watched it, that was my feeling. Like, I'm really proud of this. The second time I watched it, I'm like, oh, all these great people performed a really terrible script. <laughs> I feel so bad. <laughs> that's why I can't watch my right. stuff. Because oh, that's man. where my brain goes every time. Oh, that's that, that's a terrible curse that you have there then. Because <laughs> it's a terrible, well, it's horrible. Stephen keeps <laughs> Stephen keeps working with you, so you're doing something right, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. See, I think I don't know what I mean. I don't know. Don't tell anyone. And we're starting a new thing together that we're going to do next year. Oh, that's awesome. I can't wait to hear more about that. We'll be on the lookout for details. I look forward to telling you about it when it's time. <laughs> uh, I have to go back to Bill and Ted for a second, just because I have always wanted to know what was going through your mind and what it was like to experience. Once Bill and Ted started taking off and there was like the cartoon and the, the, the serial and the action figures at what was, what was it like to be part of that process and just be like, okay, I guess we're, have we created the new teenage mutant Ninja turtles? I mean, what's going on here? Like Chris and I never thought people would even read the script. Right. So the idea that it caught on was like playing with house money. It was crazy. And the cartoon I didn't really have anything to do with. There was a TV show that I fucking hated. Uh, Chris and I wanted to be involved until they heard our ideas. And then they basically fired us before even hiring us on it. Wow. And so I couldn't wa I watched like five minutes of a TV show and I went, Oh my God, I can't watch this. So I don't really know what the show was, but I didn't like it. It wasn't, it, that was a weird feeling, you know? And, and I've experienced that on a few things where like you, create something and then someone else takes it and does something with it. And sometimes they do stuff that's better, but sometimes it's like, what the hell? And it was, it really bummed me out. The TV show bummed me out. Like yeah. really, really bummed me out. The cartoon I heard was pretty good, but I just couldn't watch it. There were comic books that Evan Dorkin did that yeah. I heard were great. Uh, yeah. I, I looked through some of them and I thought, this guy's great. He's imaginative. He's interesting. <laughs> But I didn't get too deep into them because it just, I don't know, it just, it raised feelings in me that I just didn't want to have. But I, I like his work a lot. And he did the recent comic book. Yeah. yeah. And we met for, for drink and we were, and he was telling me his ideas. And I'm like, dude, this all sounds great. Go for it. And he's like, do you want to like contribute? And I was like, no, it's your world. You're doing this world but you have my blessing. I love the energy you're putting into it. I love the passion you have for it. And he's like, okay, you know, great. And it, it's, I'm, I approve of, appreciate, am, am grateful for, you know, all yeah. of those things, but I don't put my energy into it because I can't, um, it's too much. I don't know why I just, yeah. I have to, my brain can't, process all that stuff that's that's interesting about evan dorkin who friend of the show love the guy uh but he does a great he's job a, with him he's an ex extremely talented guy yeah I super think. talented it's also yeah. fascinating that he's never seen the first movie either you know so like <laughs> that's hilarious yeah, he's, he's never <laughs> seen it but you know like it, that's 
beautiful. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love that. That's, that's in print somewhere else. So I haven't like, I haven't like ratted it, keeps, it out. But keeps his vision pure. You it know? does. It does. But yeah. God bless him. You know what I mean? That just that and living in Staten Island are the two things that if that's you got you know, good for you. Yep. No, I, I like him a lot. And I, and I, and I, um, the stuff I have seen of his, like the stuff he's shown me, mm-hmm. I'm like, dude, that's great. That's like great stuff. And it's its own universe. You know, it's a sort of separate universe. And, and like the things that to me are the most moving are like, yes, let's like putting that Evan stuff aside. Cause like Evan stuff is, is terrific. Mm-hmm. I hated the TV show. I, as, as we've said, I thought it was a very, very bad misunderstanding of what Bill and Ted were very surface, mm-hmm. and very crass. The, what you, but to, you know, Kelly, to your question, or maybe it was yours, Jason, I don't remember, but it was, what does it feel like to have like people doing Bill and Ted or Bill and Ted cosplay or fan art or um, that is probably the most meaningful, like most moving part of my career is that Chris and I created something on a lark, really, because of our friendship and because of something that made us laugh and these characters that we cared about. It really was created not to cash in. We've never, I've made almost no money on Bill and Ted, including Face the Music, for 35 years now, almost no money. I mean, I've made money, Mm -hmm. but the equivalent of $15,000 a year, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, that's money. That's real money. More than Men in Black, probably. I'm just joking. No, well, I haven't made money on pro. I've made no net profits on Men in Black, but I have made more residuals than Men in Black. Men in Black has paid me much more than Bill and Ted on the long run, for sure. I mean, Bill, I've made money on Bill and Ted for sure over the years, but not like that much. And Bill and Ted was never for the money. Mm -hmm. But the most meaningful thing for me is the way it has landed with certain people and the fan base of it and the fight to get face the music made was a fight to let it exist for the people for whom it meant something. It meant a lot to us. If I were to sort of create concentric circles about like how, what the, why we made that movie and who I wanted to please me, Chris, Alex, Keanu, Dean, Scott Kroof Mm -hmm. in the inner circle. That was like the original team. Like, let's make a movie we are proud of. That was the first circle. But then the second circle and the reason that I was so stressed when it looked like it was going to fall apart was the, the second circle, which was the people who had loved Bill and Ted the people who had seen the movie a bunch of times, those were the reasons the movie got made in the first place, Face the Music. Mm -hmm. And that was why we were willing to give our money back to production, why when it looked like it was going to fall apart, we we fought like crazy to get it, like do whatever we could, reduce the budget, you know, put our money back into the movie, cut the days, do whatever we could because I didn't want to let those people down. And the, the pressure I felt, I haven't felt on anything. The pressure to not just get the movie made, but to make it at least good enough to validate the affection of the people who, or, or ennoble or, or dignify, what's the word I'm looking for? Like 
to, to give, to make something worthy of the people who had fought for, <laughs> to get it made, you know, to make yeah. it worthy of the fans that loved the movie because I never haven't had an experience on a film. I've written a lot of movies that have been so-called hits or successful or had sequels, but never that had the kind of fan base or the deep, you know, like Bill and Ted doesn't have a wide fan base. It's not like popular wide. Like Men in Black was a widely popular film and it was a pop film and I'm proud of the movie. It was mm -hmm. a successful film. And I, I think Barry Seinfeld did a great job and Will and Tommy were great. and. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not dissing that movie at all, but it still didn't have that. It, Bill and Ted has a, a not wide, but deep. <laughs> and those people mean the world to me. And they feel like family to me. And I know that's weird, but they embraced these characters that we didn't have a lot of other support for at times, at great times, and mm -hmm. still don't to be totally honest. I mean, it's still perceived as weird. And like half the people are like, what the fuck? Like, that is the stupidest shit I have ever seen in my life. And you know what? It's like, thankfully now I don't care. <laughs> you know? yeah. But like at, for a long time, it was hard when the first movie came out and got trashed. It was really hard. It was really painful, like brutally painful because I couldn't understand why people like why, why serious critics hated Bill and Ted so much that they would not just trash it in their review of Bill and Ted, but weeks later they trash it in reviews of other movies. You know, <laughs> there was a guy from the LA Times, like a third string critic from the LA Times who reviewed Bill and Ted, and he also reviewed Jason, one of the Friday the 13th movies. It was Jason Takes Manhattan, and I remember him going, Hey, here's an idea. And it was not even a review for Bill. It was a review of Jason of Friday the 13th. He's like, how about Jason takes Bill and Ted? And I was like, that's not even a review of our movie. We're already dead. You've already killed us. We're on the ground. You don't have to keep oh stabbing us. That was two weeks ago. Leave us alone. That hurt. Stop. I was too young. It was too painful. But you know what? It, it the world's come around. We we did an entire show with uh, Noel Murray, a, a film critic of some renown, and we went over some of the old reviews and some of the <laughs> re-reviews. And I mean, it, it's universally beloved. There are some people that are just never going to get it, but there is a ton of people now who do, who might not have at the first. And this third film, just real quick, you guys did stick the landing. It sure. was just better than Kelly and I could have hoped for. It just yeah. loved it. Well, I was going to say, I know you, you, you guys did not set out to make a film during a pandemic, right? Or ha a release a film during a pandemic. You know, you wanted people in theaters and in seats. But there was yeah. something really poetic about that film and the release and the timing. Seeing Be Excellent to Each Other come back around again on marquees of, you know, around New oh. York City and just the love with all of that, I mean, what we're talking about here is just the whole basis for our podcast even existing. So, <laughs> right. uh, honestly, thank you guys so much for saying that. I mean, it is weird when those. I've seen those some of the photos of those marquees. Chris makes fun of me all the time because I get super weepy. But when I see those marquees that say "Be excellent to each other," I literally weep. I like, like I can't fucking believe that we did that. That like this little thing from ships oh so long ago, <laughs> this little thing that we didn't even think about 
like is now sticking on a marquee during a pandemic. The idea, we, nobody is lucky that there was a pandemic. It's screwed everybody up. And it's, there's some, it's like, this is a whole other subject, of course. Sure. But the movie, look, you know, it messed up a lot of our ability to do it in post, obviously, as it did with a lot of movies. We had to make a lot of sacrifices and compromises. Everyone on the planet had to do. But I didn't mind that it wasn't in theaters. I didn't mind that. It seemed like a kind of movie you could watch with your family. It didn't, that didn't, it was like, okay with me. Um, I felt bad that it cost so much money when it came out. I was like, why are you charging people like 29 bucks to buy it? Can't you just, can't you make it cheaper for people? But there was some deal with, there's all that theatrical stuff and whatever. We obviously don't have any control over that. But the fact that the movie, like you were saying, it got revisited in the cultural memory. It has been kind of resurrected in a way. It was despised by the so-called serious critics early. The second movie, which wasn't, didn't hold up as well. The script wasn't as good. We, we, we messed up the last third of the second movie of Bogus Journey, but it got better reviews than the first movie. And I think at first, when it first came out, I think now in hindsight, it doesn't have as good reviews because I think that the first movie was, was re-looked at a bit. But one of the things that I'm most grateful for about having faced the music, having worked, and to that we owe not just Keanu and Alex, who of course were partners beyond partners, you know, just they are Bill and Ted, mm -hmm. but also Dean. I mean, Dean made a, a movie that I'm proud of. You know, he, he with very limited resources, and, and that credit goes to Scott Kroof, goes to Alex Leibovich, who was one of the other producers, goes to the, you know, the whole crew, obviously the whole cast, mm -hmm. all the folks. But what happened was because Face the Music happened, what had started as this weird youthful lark that was basically a, a reflection of Chris and my adolescence, basically, became a life work. And it became like this gift of no matter what happens and regardless of the money or lack of money, you know, or that's so not important. What it became was a piece of work that expand my whole life. That's weird and nice, you know, like never expected, never expected that ever. And when you say that about, about sticking the landing, I can't tell you what that means. When I hear you say something like the movie worked for you, it makes me feel so fucking grateful that we got it made because it almost didn't happen. And it was literally for people like you guys, like people who, for whom the movies meant something. And uh, I often think, you know, so much of my work or the work of any writer, you're just in a room alone, like for sometimes years, years, you're working on stuff. It doesn't get made. You write another thing. It doesn't get made. Took it face the music. It took us 12 years to get it made. So you don't usually have a relationship with the people for whom you're writing it. So you find yourself just writing it for yourself because you realize that statistically every day is basically spent by yourself. So when you say that, it actually makes me think, holy shit, there's a voice on the other end, or there's a, let's say an ear on the other end that heard the scream across the chasm, you know, that uh, it wasn't just an echo. It was like another human. So that's really super meaningful. Maybe I'm getting maudlin. 
Maybe I've had one too many glasses of wine on this podcast. Cheers. My apologies. <laughs> Cheers. Yeah, oh, good. I'm glad. I don't feel so alone. <laughs> uh, anyone who's listened this far and who hasn't like turned it off, thank you. And I apologize for being so fucking maudlin. I have had probably one glass of wine today. Oh, I think there's a single tear coming down all yeah. of our listeners. Yeah, eyes exactly. Right a single tear. A clown who cries. That's what I want to be. A clown who cries. That, that, I want to be that original. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. I'm, don't send me this podcast. I don't want to listen to it. Please. Fair enough. We'll title it. Ed will never hear this. Yeah, Ed, thank you. Like, literally, don't let me. Block me. Block me on your Twitter. Do everything to make it impossible. <laughs> oh man um one one last thing i want to thank you for on on the last film um i have an eight-year-old daughter and uh because i'm her father she loves bill and ted because she's a good daughter but when i show <laughs> we, we, we went to the drive-in and i showed her face the music i'd watched it a couple times and you know she's just a little blonde girl eight years old and she saw thea up there and was just gobsmacked and at the end of it she's like daddy i can i can save the world and i'm like of course you can honey and it was just <laughs> great for her to see here come the waterworks I, now but i'm just like it, it, i know i'm sorry oh. but it, now you're gonna get me even more maudlin <laughs> you just when you thought ed couldn't get more maudlin <laughs> dude that means everything to me i honestly thank you so much for saying that and please god you know god Bless it, you know, and and honestly, Sam and Bridget, I uh, we owe so much to them and their courage and what they did to this movie for this movie. That is remarkable, and thank you, thank you for telling me that, and thank you for showing it to your daughter. And God dang it, that is amazing. <laughs> that is just amazing. That is just amazing. I'm not going to get more modeling. I'm going to stop. <laughs> that, Perfect. That's fair. That's fair. Um, uh, one one last question because I'm I'm going down the oh my god I'm getting to talk to Ed Solomon. What are some uh, things bucket you, list? Yeah, bucket list questions. Bucket list questions. <laughs> so we we know that the original, well not the original, but while filming, one of the endings of the script was in the classroom, and then it was decided to do the big presentation in the auditorium. There was also a prom scene. When was the decision made to change that last scene from the classroom presentation to the you know iconic auditorium? like stage show which just really sealed the deal for the movie and then also any insight into what was in the prom scene i'll try to remember what's in the prom scene because that was original right yep. but I, i'll see if i can remember it but here's an area where i was very wrong i really thought all these great historical figures filing into a little classroom would have this deep emotional impact and i fought for it and i was wrong i was totally wrong it also relied on the relationship that we'd set up in the script between Bill and Ted and these other characters from the high school that got cut out of the movie, Randolph, Biff, Jody, Ox, Buffy, like all these characters and how much they despised Bill and Ted. I thought that when Bill and Ted showed them up by bringing actual Abraham Lincoln and <laughs> actual Genghis Khan and, you know, et cetera, into the classroom, that that would have this deep emotional impact. But it felt very puny when we screened it. And it was anticlimactic. And others had said it needs to be bigger, and I fought them, and I was wrong. So it was a reshoot. It was additional footage that was shot after we had finished the movie. So that's where the so-called, you know, the iconic, as you said, mm -hmm. the, the big so-called concert. And I remember even Scott Kroof, who was producing it and who produced Face the Music and, and who produced Bogus Journey, uh, 
I remember Scott actually saying during the reshoot, we got these, I don't forget what they were called, but they were these certain lights that were used in con. They were the sort of cutting edge concert lights at the time. Mm -hmm. And I remember on set having to write some of the jokes, some of which I think are decent and some I think are passable and not great that I remember writing. That's how that one got shot. Uh, the prom scene, because there's a whole scene in, in Excellent Adventure where they're, they write the poem, which I do like the poem of, of, oh, you beautiful babes from England for whom we have traveled through time. Will you go to the prom with us in San Dimas? We will have a most triumphant time. The idea that villains had rhymed time with time, yeah. I always found yep. very amusing. Yep. <laughs> and I remember Chris and I laughing a lot writing that moment. But they went to the prom. They came, They went and got them and brought them to the prom. These princesses from medieval England that got cut out for whatever reason. I guess it. I don't know why that was. Like we thought that was the most emotional ending. We thought you know the classroom and then the prom. But I guess when we screened it or they screened it or it got screened for an audience, it just didn't land for people. So it became like big concert ending. And then we had and then on Bogus Journey, I'm pretty sure we reshot the ending of that one too to make it a bigger concert ending. So then by face the music, it's like, I guess we end these movies with a big concert. <laughs> <laughs> That's just what you do in a Bill and Ted movie, right. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Let's avoid reshooting the ending. And by the way, we intended to add, we had more shot, more things. We, and we actually saved money to reshoot, to not reshoot, to additional, do additional footage. We actually planned to add some scenes to face the music that because of COVID we couldn't do anyway. Wow. So, but we figured we might have to reshoot or at least do additional footage, but we never got to. So yeah, we yeah. we had heard that uh, in Face the Music, you guys were maybe going to have a scene where you revisited the Circle K, but that that got cut. One of my very favorite <clears throat> scenes in this drafts that got cut was there was a couple things about it that I really loved during the downward trajectory where Bill and Ted in Face the Music are basically realizing that the more forward they go in their life, the worse their life is. They decide, well, maybe we should go back. Maybe we should go back to when we were young. And there were two scenes that were cut. One was Bill and Ted go back and see themselves as like nine or 10 year olds. And Missy <laughs> is their babysitter. She's in high school. Nice. And they go back to tell themselves to get on the right track. And what I loved about the scene was they're basically berating their young selves, saying, don't screw anything up, do everything right, be perfect and, and save the world. And it was like the absolute last thing that a nine-year-old would want to hear, right? right? Or could understand. It was like two crazy old guys going, be perfect, never screw anything up, be, you know. So that was that scene that we ended up cutting because it was a little bit overlapping of the scene where they go back to try to save their own marriages and end up making it worse. We thought like we only have the money and time to shoot one of these. It's more important to be with the princesses, the wives that, mm -hmm. that we don't want to lose. We're already losing so much of that storyline because of the budget cuts and budget cuts and budget cuts that we have to, we want to preserve as much as we can. So we got rid of the nine-year-old one. The second scene that we cut, which was cut for a slightly different reason, which was my favorite Bill and Ted scene that we lost was they go, well, maybe that nine-year-old is too early. When, when did it all change for us? Let's go to that moment. And so they go visit themselves at the Circle K and they land. So you have middle-aged, 50-year-old or whatever, Bill and Ted, land at the Circle K and see their 17-year-old selves at the moment that the other 17-year-old versions of them land and change everything and say, you guys are going to have this excellent adventure through time. And the idea was 
So, well, we in our dream, we would find unused footage from dailies from the first movie, and we would use it and cut in that footage with Alex and Keanu present day, Alex and Keanu, so that we could actually use unused footage. We couldn't find any unused footage. That was one problem. So that meant we were stuck with the footage from the original movie. And the idea was we were gonna have Bill and Ted interact with their younger selves. And we had written a whole scene that I really had liked where current Bill says to Ted, go like, go talk to yourself, you know, go tell, you know, find out and tell yourself. And, and current Ted, who's very depressed because his life isn't going the way, you know, he wants it to go. He shows up to younger Ted played by some, you know, young 20 year old playing 17 year old Keanu Reeves. And it was going to be, Hey, you know, like, you know, and like, and, and, and young Ted, I mean, and Ted says, I always thought that was my depressing old uncle Ted. And so he shows <laughs> up and he's like, Hey, and he's trying to talk to young Ted, but he just ends up making him even more depressed. And, <laughs> and at the end, he just says, I'm uncle Ted. He's like, I'm not even you. I'm just your old uncle Ted and walks away. And it's like, well, that didn't work. That was the idea behind yeah. the scene. And they were going to have a moment. And this was the meaningful thing for me with George. There was going to be a moment where they talked to Rufus. But because we only had the footage from the first movie, it would have required us to do all this like digital yeah. bullshit. Star mm -hmm. Wars kind of uh, a thing. Yeah. Right? And the problem there was what was going to be an homage to George Carlin was going to end up being a digital kind of uncanny valley mm -hmm. <laughs> mess up. And was like, that's the last thing we want to do. Right. We don't have the money or time or footage to do this well. So let's not do it at all because the last thing we want to do is mess with the guy we're trying to honor, you know? Sure. And that is why ultimately we cut it. It just, cause it wasn't going to work well. And if it wasn't going to work well, it wasn't worth doing. So that's why we cut it. Where you guys landed in the third film with the homage to, to George Carlin was pretty great. It, it, it came off with the right amount of respect and you didn't have to worry about like, Oh God, they tried to do it's zombie George Carlin. You didn't have to worry about it. So it worked I'm out grateful really well. to you say that. Yeah. I appreciate that. You know what? I was worried that we didn't do enough. I was actually worried. I, at the end of the day, we got it in, but I really wanted the movie to recognize how much he meant to us mm -hmm. because he meant so much to us, you know? And I mean, he and Kelly was in the movie mm -hmm. and that's mm -hmm. why we named Kristen Charles' yep. character, Kelly Kelly, is George Carlin's daughter, for those of you who don't know. But, I mean, we did not want to diminish that at all, you know? I appreciate that you said that, but, like, that was a bummer, you know, that we didn't... We wanted to make sure whatever we did that we didn't blow it. You didn't blow it. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't leaving it there, so you didn't say that. No. <laughs> the proposal scene in Bogus Journey, Bill oh, and yes. Ted, it just cracks me up every time. Uh, Kelly and I have had endless conversations, theoretical conversations about this. Did Bill and Ted write those together or are their brains in such harmony that they both went for the same metaphors, but, but different ecosystems? Absolutely the latter. Okay. All right. All right. There you go. Yes. There you go. Yes. That's what he wanted to hear for uh, sure. Absolutely a hundred percent. This <laughs> podcast has been worth it. I can sleep tonight. Guys, you've been amazing, and I know that it's taken a while to get us all on the same like time zone to be able to do this. I'm really grateful that I got to do this, and, and thank you. Oh, 
you, not only thank you for having me, but thank you for having this podcast, period. And whoever's listening, thank you for even staying on this long and being oh, man. still a part of this. We, we couldn't have done it without you. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> and it's, By the it, way, and I really mean it. And the, the same is true, vice versa. Truly, we wouldn't have got Face the Music made if it wasn't for people like you and the people that would listen to this thing. So seriously, it would not have happened. So, so honestly, it goes right back at you. You've, you've made this a beautiful bookend that we sort of started this with Chris and we're ending it with you though. We are leaving the door open for Keanu if he, if he's out there (laughs) and ever wants to call in, but uh, no, it's, it's, it's really just, it's a nice bookend to, to what's been a fun couple of years for us. And the fact that we started this before the third movie was ever announced and then it happened while we were doing this has made it even sweeter so oh, it's really an honor to be on and really a pleasure to see you guys in person or not in person i guess what counts is in person <laughs> right. today, but see you guys face quote face to quote face and, uh, <laughs> thank you guys a ton and uh you know let's you know hopefully we can do this again sometime thanks ed we great. really appreciate your time and thank you so much it's been an honor my pleasure thank you and and thanks for you know thank you so much for having me I don't know what to say. I, I don't know what to say. Man. Okay. Not only did we get such great insight in, into Bill and Ted, but I never dreamed I would have gotten to talk to a guy who like knew Gary Shandling and like really worked with him. And like that, that, that to me is like coming home. That, that's just like something I've always wanted to talk to somebody about. And yeah. what an added bonus. I really appreciated his honesty. Uh, his frustrations as a young person, like get, landing his first gig so quick like that, uh, and then having to regroup, uh, getting the boost from Gary, and then you know, soldiering forward, man. Yeah. Oh, oh, man. And, and what a career! I know. What a career. What, what a career. And what about his his honesty talking about the end of the original Bill and Ted, and how he was the one that was wrong, and you know he he was fighting for the original ending that was eventually changed. So fascinating, yeah. so fascinating, and, and I have to wonder if a little bit of that is like him being so gracious and falling on a sword and not like le- letting anybody sure. else take. The, but but man, just well, so great. If there's one thing we've learned, it's like what a collaborative process making a movie is, especially these movies. Yeah, and everyone we've talked to, man, they've all been incredible. Uh, the effort, the time that went into these films, the love. Uh, it's just so evident on screen, all three of them. It is. It, it really is. It really is. I, I'm i struck by the parallels between the, the first and the third, especially the making of both of them. You know, the second one had more money, had a little bit more support, even though it, it seemed like nobody at the time really believed in it. Interesting side note, AV Club a couple of weeks ago, maybe the past week, week before, did a series on, like, uh, better sequels. And the whole hypothesis of that was that Bogus Journey was the best of the trilogy. Oh, interesting. It, it is interesting because, I mean, like, it, coming into this, it was my favorite, right? But to see, like, somebody go back and, and reassess these things, just fascinating to see that in, in digital ink. Yeah, and, and and we've known this, but to hear it from Ed, you know, talk about Bogus Journey and how they did, you know, they ran out of money, they rushed the ending, it wasn't what they wanted, they didn't think it was as good as it could have been. It was really kind of refreshing, you know, to to hear, you know, a writer yeah. really talk about that because the funding for films is hard. It's really, really hard. Maybe that's my biggest takeaway. <laughs> right. And, I, and it's, it's getting harder, too, right? Yeah. I mean, like, I, I, I've read about how the, these epic tentpole movies and the Marvels are, are like, 
soaking up all the funds and everybody's putting all their money in a big pot to get like a big reward. Nobody's mm-hmm. making like mid films, independent films, barely get any funding. So it's got to be a, a work of love. And it's weird that like uh, Face the Music ended up almost being an indie film, right? I yeah. mean, like it, it yeah. had some backing, but. Right. And uh, obviously, you know, talked a lot about Steven Soderbergh mm-hmm. and how he really helped rescue the film in a way, I guess. Yeah. And what a fruitful relationship. You know, they did that mosaic show on HBO, um, which I, I don't think I quite caught if that led to the Bill and Ted or if that. I think that that uh, was the grounding for a relationship between them. Right. And then, like, they'd been working together. And I think this latest film that he talked about, it's coming out. Right. Um, like, while they were working there. So, gotcha. I mean, like, what what a what a great relationship and a great thing. So, thanks, Stephen. Appreciate it. <laughs> so, yeah, we, you and I are sitting here looking at each other. Uh, we knew coming in here that this would probably be the last episode of San Dimas today. Um, you know, we, we, we definitely want to throw it out there that we, that we keep the door open to come back mm-hmm. one day. Yeah. Uh, and you know, in no small measure, that's leaving it open for you, Keanu Reeves. Uh, but, uh, for all intents and purposes, you know, we're, we're putting an incredible, uh, bow on top of all of this. Yeah, man. I, I couldn't be happier. When you and I started talking about ideas for a podcast, this one just seemed like so natural for us, but it was really just going to be, you and I like talking about the movies. We had recurring segments that we wanted to do, right? <laughs> right. Like, like go into a song, mm-hmm. a, a different song from the soundtrack each episode. I think that lasted for two episodes. It did. It did. <laughs> also, uh, talking about merch, right? So, like, oh, we, yeah. we were going to talk about different merch stuff that <laughs> the cereal. <laughs> Man, yeah. Yeah, I was never able to to get anybody uh, to talk to me about Purina cereals. I had looked up some articles um, and like tried to find journalists who had talked about like how yeah. Purina had done cereals. Nobody would call me back. The, uh, for our listeners, uh, Jason was getting really deep on people that he wanted to interview for this thing. <laughs> hey. We were going like maybe three, four layers into Bill and Ted fandom, like deeper than I ever thought we would go. I regret nothing, man. Like, <laughs> listen, we were able to use this show to interview Noel Murray, right? Who's yep. like a personal favorite sure. of ours. And the fact that we were able to connect that into this. Oh, yeah. Man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, comic legend, Evan Dorkin. Oh, right. Man. Like we could have talked to that guy for hours. Um, what, what were maybe your top two or three moments oh. during this podcast? Like, you know, maybe not greatest moments, yeah. maybe intense moments. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe maybe terrible moments. I don't know what you're thinking. <laughs> okay, so let me tell you what. This is tangentially related to the show, but something that happened to me that only would have happened because of this show. Um, when I introduced my daughter to Bill and Ted, the very first time, I videotaped her while she watched Napoleon at Waterloops, right? And she just cracked up and laughed and laughed. And I was able to send that video to Terry Camilleri. And he wrote back, he was like, thank you so much. That just warms my heart. And I'm like, yes, you know, like being able to share that moment with that guy who brought me so much joy and is bringing my daughter so much joy and like just trying to feed it back to him. Man, the the Terry interview was going to be right up there for me, maybe for slightly different reasons. That seemed like the first just most comfortable interview we did. Was that the second or third interview? It might have been. It was the third because the second we lost. We oh, right. lost the second episode. So first Ooh. one, Chris Matheson, which was amazing. Yep. That, that guy, 
like I'd reach it out to him and I'm like, Hey, I'm, I'm Jason. I'm doing this podcast. And we hadn't broadcast at all. And I put my telephone number in there and I'm at work and I get this call. It's like, Hey, this is Chris Mathis. And I'm like, shut the, you know, it, it was, yeah, I was taken aback and then had a nice conversation with him. He agreed to be interviewed. We did the interview. It's just so gracious. So cool. And we found out so much stuff about oh the yeah early version dog of rufus yeah dog yeah. rufus yeah <laughs> <sighs> of course then we then we interviewed um the costume director jill o'hannison jill o'hannison and phenomenal interview phenomenal interview couldn't have gone better in every way every facet <laughs> we learned so much in that interview about how uh costume design plays together with production design how they're constantly collaborating, moving. We also learned a lot about the filming of the original Bill and Ted because she talked about going over to Europe, mm-hmm. what that was like, costuming everyone. It, it was just amazing. And yeah. then we hung up the phone with her. We were high-fiving. And then the digital was just corrupted. We had no audio of it. Yeah. And uh, it it hurt a little bit, but that's what happens in this business, folks. Yeah. yeah. When you're a podcaster, sometimes those files will get corrupted. It's just terrible. It's uh, just you terrible. know, it happened to Mark Marin the other month. You know, if it's still happening to him, I think mm-hmm. we're doing okay. Yeah, I think we'll be all right. I think we'll be all right. So that was a bummer. But right. then, uh, but then Terry. Yeah, but then Terry. And, you know, that, that one was neat because that was the first one that <clears throat> he actually got on video because we were Skyping him from Australia. And he was on video the whole time, even though we were on audio. And I was looking at him the whole time. And I, I, I don't know what it was. I mean, man, it's hard to pick. You know, I think Sadler has maybe the greatest performance in the entire trilogy. But I, I don't know how you rank it over Napoleon either. And and that conversation, we learned about how much of that was improv that yeah. he did. Yeah. Uh, and it just made it that much better. It did. I mean, you got the Holy Trinity, right, of, of the... The B-plot guys and Bill and Ted who just stealing the show. Napoleon, phenomenal. Um, Death, phenomenal. Dennis Caleb McCoy, phenomenal. Yep. Like all all three of them. What these writers did was they gave heart to each of these characters yeah. and it shows through in all three movies. Yeah. And to hear the guy who, who was doing it talk about what a great time it was to talk about that day at the uh, water park yeah. filming the Waterloo scene. And he just seemed like such a cool guy that, you know, it, we we kind of ended the whole thing like, hey, if you're in Nashville, let's have a beer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, and speaking of having a beer with somebody who's ever in Nashville, Jonathan Leahy. Right. I mean, just, just yeah. great. Right. That's just like, that felt like sitting down with a guy you should probably, we should probably be friends with, you know? I mean, we wish we were cool yeah, enough. Yeah, we friendly. wish we were cool enough, but it's fine. <laughs> we learned so much about the process, and it's an, a process of making films that mm-hmm. I, I had never really considered or realized how much thought went into it. And that, yeah. it's like you're almost directing this, like a fourth of the film yourself, right? Yeah. I mean, everything's got to be approved by the director, but the work he did with the soundtrack and the orchestration and, and like, putting together the final song, right? Right. It seems like such a high-pressure job. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it said a lot when we interviewed Alex Winter uh, after Jonathan, who said just as much. It was like, man, that guy had a really hard job. Right. (laughs) Right. And he stuck the landing. Yeah, yeah. Um, We got to talk to Alex Winter. Yeah, right. (laughs) About Frank Zappa. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, look, that was a 14-minute blur. I don't really even remember it. Yeah. I just remember just kind of looking 
at him on the computer. And I I don't know. It's uh that that's it's just that level of fandom or starstruck or something. It doesn't happen to me much. Oh uh, yeah, Doctor Amy Stock. Two uh, interviews. Two interviews. She I was mean, gracious I mean, enough to our, come. Our back. only repeat interviewee. Yeah. So, but that first one was so enlightening mm-hmm. and just so interesting to hear yeah. about her career and her life and like struggles she's had going on now. And it's mm-hmm. just just so gracious with her time, so open and honest, and just oh man, I'm I'm tearing up here, Kelly. No, no. I mean it. So Laura Shapiro, who you know. We thought we were the biggest Bill and Ted fans until we talked to her. Uh, I mean, like, I really thought she was going to be our big get. Like, the person closest to the center of the universe. You know, like, who had the most knowledge about the production of Face the Music, especially. Mm -hmm. Um, And, man, one, the book is great. I love the book. And just getting to talk to her about her career, how she got started, Mm -hmm. how she got involved in writing that book, how she's been a script consultant and how she's involved in all these things. Just fascinating. How she's going to find those missing scenes. Yes. I mean, she is the ambassador of Bill and Ted. Yeah, she is. She absolutely is. I I mean, just so fortunate to be able to speak to her and Mm -hmm. just, I mean, everybody, man, everybody, you know what? I mean, we haven't even talked about William Sadler. William Sadler. (laughs) We talked to William Sadler. I, I enjoyed the shows when we had uh, uh, local musicians yeah, in, right? Yeah. Like, that was so fun. Right, so right. Cool. When we had Mike and Cody in the yeah, room. Yeah. Uh, we had uh, Becky Delius here. Yeah. That was a great episode. First time viewer. First time viewer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's always nice. Yes. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I love converting folks, you know? <laughs> yeah. And like even at work last week, I incorporated Bill and Ted into my presentation, and I can only hope that got HBO Max some extra views of Bill and Ted over the weekend. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. <laughs> I'll say one other thing that really, really got me doing the show. When we were doing the show, and in the middle of doing the show, they announced that Face the Music had been greenlit and they were going to start production. That was just so neat. Yeah. Right? I mean, look. You know, hardcore fans, we've known that the script's been out there for years, but there was there was nothing indicating that this thing was going to happen, you know, when it did. Right. Uh, <laughs> we always joke that, you know, we credit ourselves in the podcast for that really happening. I'm not joking. <laughs> I am not joking. <laughs> Obviously, we know it had a lot more to do with finding the money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, one thing I think, we could probably talk a little bit about is that, you know, we hope to not be going away mm-hmm. when it comes to podcasting and hopefully in such a way where if you're subscribing to this podcast, you're going to find out about what we're going to do next. Yep. Um, yep. We're going to keep it a little under wraps until we get it a little bit more worked out. This, this will hopefully be a fruitful partnership that will continue. No, I'm sick of you, man. We're done. <laughs> we are done. I just want to be your Steven Soderbergh. I just don't have enough money. <laughs> <laughs> well, get crackalacking, buddy. Let's do this. No, um, Kelly, this, is, this has really been the greatest honor to go on this journey with you, man. Yeah. It's just been so wonderful. And, I mean, obviously we can't thank Michael Leeds, our producer, enough. Yeah. I mean, he, you know... Given two guys, given a platform to two guys with a silly idea. Yeah, I mean, I can appreciate that. And of course, you know, Michael, he's he is a true ambassador of creative arts here in Nashville. He runs a record label. He runs the best podcast network in town. 
Handsome beard. Handsome beard. He's got a lot going for him. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. he's got, I think he's going to make it in this world. We'll see. We'll see. It's touch and go. It's touch and go. But uh, we're, we're rooting for him. Um, thanks to Scott Bricklin. Excuse and Scott me. Bricklin. Let's talk about Scott Bricklin. Let's talk about Scott Bricklin. We, he's, let, he's graciously let us use that song. And with this podcast, we haven't made a dime of advertising money. So sorry about that, Scott. We, we've not made a dime of any money, actually. <laughs> the, the amount of money I've spent sending buttons and stickers to England <laughs> is kind of astonishing, but totally worth it. So, Yep. And you know what? We do have some buttons. We do have some prints left. Maybe we'll figure something out on the interwebs. Uh to, to try and get some more of that stuff to listeners who who, who want it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so. like, you know, just clogging up our junk drawers at this point. So That's right. Would... That's right. Those Andy Vastag prints aren't going to sell themselves. No, but those things are glorious. That they is, are. That is a really handsome poster. And, <laughs> hey, and thanks to Andy for actually doing that for yeah. us, right? Yeah. Supported the great artists. The Bill and Ted Day that we had. It was oh, fantastic. Man. And we hope to keep doing that yep. once it's safe again. Uh, I think... Uh, you know, we've earned our right to throw a Bill and Ted Day party every year here in Nashville. I think so. I think so. Even if it's just you and I watching Bill and Ted. Sure. Yeah. We're going to do it. <laughs> no one's going to stop us. Unless I'm busy that day. And then- <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It's, you know, it's great that uh, finally this last episode we can just ramble more than we've ever rambled before. Because, you know what? Nobody's listening. To I might point. not even edit this. <laughs> don't. I might don't. not even edit there's, this. There's no point. There's no point. <laughs> Take out that portion where we talk about, and then we're good. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, man. JT, I don't really know what else to say other than be excellent to each other. Party on, dudes! You can edit it to whatever you want, and you don't need to run it by me afterwards. Just do whatever you want with it. Okay. I just want to get the parameters. Uh, would sure. you prefer me to not swear? No, you can swear. You can swear. <laughs> okay. Uh, would you prefer me to put pants on? Because I can do that. Uh, it's audio only. Follow your bliss. Follow right. your bliss. We'll, we'll, right, we'll keep the video just for us. You know. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. of course. That's for you. This is for you. This is our private. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Okay, cool. Um, Can we start recording? Yeah, let's, let's start, start recording. He is wearing pants. Oh, I know you lied. You lied. That fucker. That fucking asshole, you lied. He made a joke. He lied for his joke. Oh, God great. damn it. That's great. I was revealed. <laughs>